0: After almost uh, almost a year talking about what it means to be the church today, uh, finishing, going through our series on the 29th chapter, uh, how we as a church continue in the work of the Apostles in Acts, uh, we are starting a new series. Uh, it's, it's kind of weird to see a new title head up on. The screen, uh, but I am very excited about what we're going to be studying for the next uh, oh, probably eight weeks. Uh, we're going to be looking at the book of Galatians, uh, and as you can see, the the title of the series is Sons. And slaves, and as we look through Galatians, we're going to be looking at one thing, and I I hope that you realize, and you've come to, I hope that what I'm about to say seems repetitive, that you kind of uh, that you're tempted to roll your eyes at, at what I'm about to say because we've just been saying it so much. But throughout this series, we're going to be looking at the gospel. Uh, that's it. We're going to look at the gospel over and over again, and and without going too much into it, because next week Brad's actually going to preach the first portion of Galatians. Paul is writing in response to this faction of people called the Judaizers, and they're so called because they wanted to Judaize this Christianity in Galatians in, in Galatia, uh, which came with a lot of painful commitments uh, for for the men and. And uh, and also was accompanied by what Paul called just the false gospel. All right, and and what's what's really crazy about what's happening in Galatia when Paul writes this letter is that this is a church that has been planted for less than a year. They're new in the faith. Uh, They should be excited. They've just heard these words from Paul and from the apostles. They've just seen these signs of, of the kingdom. They've seen the power of the Spirit sweep through their city. And in less than a year, they're already being fooled. Paul says bewitched by a false gospel. It's that quick. It's that quick that this false gospel creeps into their midst. And so we're going to be looking at what the real gospel is. And in short, the false gospel leads to one thing, slavery. But the true gospel of Jesus Christ leads to sonship. And all of the rewards and benefits and blessings that come with that. And and, and so we're going to be looking Week after week, through different portions of Galatians, and thinking about the same thing. You can either turn to slavery or you can turn to Christ and be a son. And so, in order to introduce, uh, just before the service, I was talking to my uh, good friend, Andrew Lufton, who's here with us. And um, in a couple months, you're actually going to get to hear from Andrew about what he and his wife are going to be doing. I'm really excited. Uh, for them, but he was just talking about how awkward uh, introduction sermons can be uh, and and i 'm going to keep it there we 're going to keep it awkward because we 're going to introduce this series uh, on the book of Galatians by turning to Luke. So if you would, uh, turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter fifteen, oh, before you turn there don 't turn there, sorry, sorry. I want to tell you a story um, and it 's about me in college. Uh, and an interaction I had with my roommate, his name is Ben, uh, and we had just finished watching Oh Brother, Where Art Thou, uh, which is a great movie, and I said so to him afterwards, we finished watching it, I was like, I love this movie, uh, I just think it's such a compelling story, and he said, yeah, it's a great story, I, I love how they used the, Iliad, or the Odyssey by Homer and I looked at him like, huh? It's like it's the Odyssey, and like there was this moment where I just sat there and I thought, okay, wait, okay, water, sirens, cyclone. Oh my goodness, it's the Odyssey, and and then he was like, dude, it's in the opening sequence. It says it, and so sure enough, he fast forwards like four minutes in, and right there it says, based on the epic. The Odyssey by Homer, and I just missed it. And here's the thing, is I'd seen that movie a lot. I'd seen it a lot. So many times, and I guess what happened is the first time that I saw it, uh, I just missed that. It didn't register with me. Uh, but then I began to see it over and over again, and I was looking forward to certain scenes. I, I love the music, and so I was just ready to hear the music. I was focusing on that. I never looked uh, at, at that first little sequence. And after a while, I just began to assume what the movie was about, what the story was, uh, and then I was put to shame. And here's the thing, is that as a church, we are constantly, constantly tempted to assume the gospel. Uh, we're, there is a, a great danger in hearing stories like the one that we're about to read. Uh, stories that we've heard over and over again. If you see the title, it's The Two Lost Sons. Uh, you know this story as The Prodigal Son. And you've all heard the story of the prodigal son. So many times that I think that as a church, we assume what it's about. All right? And for me, preparing this, I've heard the prodigal son so many times. I've actually taught it uh, now several times, which is is weird mm. to think that, like, oh, I've got all these previous notes. I've read great books on it, books that summarize this much better than I pop- possibly can. I'll tell you those afterwards so you're not, like, scanning them into your e-reader and ignoring me the whole time. Uh, but... But I've gone through the prodigal son, the two lost sons, so much uh, that, that it's tempting for me even to just go on uh, cruise control as I prepared this sermon and just say, well, here are the things that we're going to talk about, but I don't want us to do that. Don't tune out. Don't check out. Because there is so much in this story for us, so much right now. And so we're going to look at the prodigal son. We're going to look at actually the story of the two lost sons. And I'll explain why uh, we're going with that name in a little bit. Uh, but we 're going to look at that and, and, and we 're going to pray right now that God would open our hearts that He would tear down our pretenses, that He would cause us to see with new eyes this story which is so familiar that hopefully I hope it 's familiar. Uh, the other fear that I have is that you just haven 't heard it that you 've been or, or that you don 't know it you 've been in church for however long, and you just for some reason can 't tell this story. Uh, that is so uh, big, so important, so amazing, um, but, but chances are it's the other way around. And so we're going to pray that God will give us new eyes so that we see, new ears so that we hear what God is saying, what the Spirit is saying through this text, and so that we're changed. Um, so uh, turn to Luke 15, and then I'm going to pray for us. Or maybe while you're turning. There are, there are no pages turning, so I'm just going to pray. We'll go, with, we'll go with it that way. All right, and and I and again, I want you to pray with me. Um, I am praying for you. I'm I'm praying for me. But we are praying together. And so, in your hearts, echo this prayer. Pray with me. God, this is a story that we've heard. It's a story that you told to people so many years ago, in a different country, in a different culture, in a different context, and you told it for them, but you told it for us. How, God, can we hear these words? How, God, can we be moved by them? Only if your spirit comes, only if it enlightens our hearts and opens our ears. So, God, we pray your spirit come. We pray that Holy Spirit would move in this place. That we would be transformed by the proclamation of your words and of your gospel. And I pray that I would decrease so that you might increase. That the words of my lips and that the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Alright, so Luke 15. Uh, If you will, stand with me as we read the story. We're starting in verse 11, and we're going to go through verse 32. And he, he being Jesus, said, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them, with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this son, uh, this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. These many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who had devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this, your brother. Was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Uh, you can be seated. All right. So here's what we're gonna do. We're just gonna explain certain elements of this text. Then I'm gonna tell you the story again. And hopefully we'll make some, some keen application. All right. Uh, and the first thing, uh, going back to my 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 or er, my, oh brother, where art thou? Snafu, if you will. Um, one thing right off the bat that I failed to do was to read. <laughs> uh, to read early, to pay attention to what was going on. And I missed a key, te- a key detail in the very beginning, based on The Odyssey by Homer, uh, that would have shaped and, and changed the way that I saw that entire movie. And for this story... Uh, I think it's important for us to realize that we have to read it in its context. A lot of times we hear this story and we don't even, and we just start with, and Jesus said to them, there was a man who had two sons, and we don't even think about the context. Who is the them that Jesus is talking to? And unless we understand that, the story won't make sense. And so in order to do that, we have to go all the way back to the the beginning of the chapter. Jesus has just told two parables, and now he's telling a third, the story of the two lost sons. But it started with this. Uh, Look, the tax collectors and the sinners were all drawing near to Jesus. Now you have to understand that this is a common occurrence in the gospel. That the tax collectors and the prostitutes and the outcasts, the sinners, they were drawing near to Jesus. And for many different reasons, self-righteousness, jealousy, whatever, you name it, the Pharisees and the scribes, the religious leaders, always had a problem with this, and so they always approached Jesus, and so they do. It says in in verse 2 that the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. And then the Bible says that Jesus begins to tell some parables. He begins to tell some stories. Right? And so present uh, in this uh, telling, in this storytelling that Jesus is giving, are sinners. And when I say sinners, I mean people who are labeled as sinners. They're tax collectors, they're prostitutes, they're, they're the, the poor and the dirty, they're the scourge of society, and they're gathered here with Jesus, and then with him also are the religious folk, the church people the Pharisees, the scribes. And these aren't just religious people. These are the religious people. They knew the law. They knew the words of God. And they're here with Jesus. And this whole parable-telling streak that Jesus goes on is initiated by whom? By the Pharisees. The Pharisees say, what's wrong with this guy? He claims to be from God, but yet the only people he associates with are those who are clearly in defiance of God's law. And so Jesus responds to them. And he tells two stories, and then finally this story. And so then, as he tells the story of the two lost sons, uh, we need to understand the context in which he tells it. So he's telling it to Pharisees and he's telling it to sinners. And then he begins the story and says, This man has two sons. And right away, we know, or we ought to know, that there's going to be some sort of contrast here given. It's important that there are two sons. Now look, the way that we've read it, the way that I've been taught it for most of my life, the story is is about this prodigal son. That's why we call it that. And it's this great, sentimental, almost sappy story of a boy who shakes his fist at his dad, takes his money and stomps off, and then realizes, "Uh uh-oh, that was a bad idea, and comes back. and And the story's about the son, and then we're kind of like, and then there's this other brother. So much so that several years ago when I was at Campbell, we were on this skit team, and we were like, what are we going to do with this other brother? And we created a 30-minute failure. Yes, yes. And Chuck was in it, so he, he has every right to call it that. It was this failure where the older brother is sitting on this couch, talking to a shrink, and oh, how could he do this? honestly guys we didn't know what to do with the older brother uh we had 20 minutes to kill here is this piece of drama um and but we don't we don't know what to do with the older brother who we we get right away the lost son all right that's the sinner who turns away who's this older brother what do we do with this older brother um and so we kind of just but he was mad And that's good enough. But look at the lost son. He comes back, right? But here's the thing is Jesus is doing something on purpose. Jesus is a great storyteller. And something that great storytellers do is they edit out useless information. In other words, if Jesus put this character in, it's for a reason, And so we've got two sons, and so we're going to have to compare and contrast the sons. And in doing that, all of a sudden, we begin to see the beginning points of this story. Because both of these sons relate to their dad. And both of these sons have a specific approach that they take to their father. And so maybe, just maybe, What Jesus is saying is that there are ways to approach life, spirituality, God. And maybe they look something like this. And so we get to the first son. And we tell the story of the first son. And maybe because we live in America, there's a lot of maybes in there. Probably because we live in America and and in this Western culture uh, where freedom and choice are so extolled even to the point of being worshipped that this is a completely understandable action by this son. We expect that when a child comes to a certain age, they leave their home. So much so that if they don't leave their home, we think, oh, there's going to be trouble. We expect that the son it's going to get mad. After all, he's 16, 17, 18. He's grown. Why is he taking instruction from We expect that. This isn't shocking to us. But you have to understand that in, in first century Israel, in the ancient Near East, this is a shocking action. The son says to the father, look, I want what is mine. What does he mean by that? I want my inheritance. I want the portion of my inheritance that is given to me. Why are there two sons and and not three? Partially because of how inheritance was divided. The eldest son got the largest portion, namely two-thirds. And the youngest son, or the second son, got the other third. All right, and so right away, The son says, a third of your estate is mine. And I want it. We have to ask questions that they would have asked. We have to know things that they would have known. What is this third of the estate? It's his inheritance. So when is it actually his? When his father died. And so what the son is saying is, look, dad, I hate you. And I wish you were dead. In fact, can you just please be dead to me and me to you? Give me my money and let me go. It's a little bit heavier. This isn't just the temper tantrum that he's throwing, oh, I want my money. He's not just like some you know rich kid in like the hills who wants to move to Santa Ana. Like it's not, it's not that. Like he wants his father dead. I remember one time, just one time, as a kid, and I was 11 years old, and I remember, uh, clearly, my mom and I were arguing about cleaning my room, which, of course, to an 11-year-old is like the end of the world. Um, I'm getting a nodded head from one of our 11-year-olds, so uh, that statement is verified. Uh, But... My mom is arguing with me. You're not going to get to go and play with your friends if you don't clean up your room. You have five minutes. Clean up your room. I didn't clean up my room in the time allotted. And She said, you are not allowed to go play with your friends. And she might as well have said, I'm going to cut off all your limbs. And I looked at her and I said, I hate you. It was the first time I'd ever done that. And she didn't blow up. Like, I I remember. that I think that was, like, the jarring part. Like, I think that if she had said, you don't mean that, then I would have come right back and, like, in my stubbornness, I would have, you know, she didn't burst into tears, which I suppose was what I was like, oh, don't hate me, go play with your friends, I'll clean up your room forever, you know. (laughs) It wasn't that, which I guess is in my 11-year-old mind what I was hoping for, anticipating. Um, She just said, Nothing. She nodded her head. She walked out, closed the door, gently, and went to her room. And like eleven point three seconds later, I was just like, Whoa! like I'm, I'm, I'm not a cryy person. And I guess I'm obsessed, I don't know, but in the, I, it was just too much for me to handle. I was just crying, crying, crying. And I went in, and she wasn't crying, and I was crying. And I was the one who said the, like, hurtful, and I was all confused. What's going on? And she embraced me, and it was, it was just the worst moment ever in my childhood, followed by one of the best moments. And, and, it, and that, that's not even this. I mean, that's bad. I mean kids say things like that and they don't get it. But I mean, this son got exactly what he was doing and he was saying, "Father, I want you dead. I'm not your son. Give me what's mine. Don't speak my name and we can keep it the same way, all right? We're done." And so he goes. And there's this other brother who doesn't do that. We don't really hear much about him for now. But you need to understand the weight of this approach to God. The younger brother's approach to God is God, uh, or the younger brother's approach to his father, I should say, is for whatever reason, it might be the rules, it might be the stinginess, the, the supposed stinginess of the father. For whatever reason, his approach to God, to his father, is to turn and walk away. It's hate, it's anger. To say, I don't need you, I don't need your rules, I don't need your house, I just need your money, and then I'm going. But the other brother had a different approach, and we see that later. In his conversation with his father at the end, he says what to his father? He says, I've been here all this time, and I've been working hard for you. All right? The younger brother hated his father, the younger brother wanted what his father had the younger brother cared only about himself and so his approach was to turn away from the father to leave but the younger brother says to or the older brother says to the father i've worked for you all this time i haven't even gotten a dinner party and you're throwing a blowout bash for this brother of yours who shook his fist in your face took your money and left who said, I hated you and I want you dead. You haven't given me anything. I've been working in the fields like a slave. Nothing. And we see this second approach that's important to understand from this. The younger brother turned away from God, but the older brother turned towards the laws and the rules and obedience. And if you have multiple kids, specifically older ones, I'm sure you, 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 you may see this. Some of your kids express themselves by just anger and turning away and, and, and you don't know what to do with them. And others of them just follow every rule. And, and it's not out of love necessarily, and you might know that, but, but rather out of this way to kind of just avoid having to deal with discipline, having to deal with the frustrations. I mean, that's what we have here. This, this older brother is turning to obedience, and that's his approach to the father. One of my favorite authors, this is a Southern author, her name's Flannery O'Connor. Um, she is... Actually, one of, so much, one of my favorite authors that uh, there's a character in her book, Wise Blood, the main character, his name is Hazel Motes. Um, and so, yeah, we took a guy name, made it a girl name, but, uh, but it's also a girl name, so we feel kind of okay with that. Uh, but Hazel Motes in Wise Blood, Flannery O'Connor describes Hazel Motes, and he says, and she says of him uh, that there already existed in him a deep, dark conviction that the best way to avoid Jesus was to avoid sin. Let me say that again. There was a deep, dark conviction already existent in Hazel Moats that said the best way to avoid Jesus is to avoid sin. Some of you are squinting, and that's all right. Because this is our culture in the South, and I think that that's why, first of all, that's why she's one of the best. Um, and secondly, that's why it's so difficult to understand, is that it so accurately hits the nail on the head that we, the nail, kind of miss it. But what... What Flannery O'Connor is saying about Hazel Moats is exactly what Jesus is saying about this older brother. That their approach is that if I just do good enough, then maybe God will leave me alone. He'll let me have the things that I want. And in the end, he'll let me go to heaven. Look, I don't even need to be at the table. I just would prefer not to be in hell. And that's how we approach it. It's this religion as as the means of achieving what we want that we call God. And so Jesus Jesus says, look, here are these two approaches, they're very different. He goes into great detail about one, about the lost, uh, about the prodigal son, about the younger son, and how his approach is, God, you're here, Father, you're here, you want me to do all of these things, like work in the field, do chores, you want me to uh, use money only the way that you want me to use it, and yet I know that when you die, I'm going to get all of these things, so. I want nothing to do with you give me, what is your, give me what is mine and let me go he hates God he turns away from God and the other brother says look I hate your rules and quite frankly when you die I'm going to get two thirds of everything you own and so I am just going to work in the fields and I'm going to do what I'm supposed to do until that day happens who is Jesus talking to? Tax collectors, prostitutes, sinners. So they hear this story, and it resonates with them right away because there's this younger brother who's turned away from God, who's turned away from the rules because he can't keep them, because he doesn't want to, because he needs something or perceives a need that's not being met, and so he turns away. But who else is Jesus talking to? Pharisees. And they don't get it. They never do. Uh, They never do. All the time Jesus is talking, this is something that's quite amazing to me, is that when Jesus talks, and it said so in the beginning of this chapter, that when Jesus speaks, he talks about grace and forgiveness and and unmerited favor. In other words, the gospel. And who's drawn to him? Sinners, prostitutes, tax collectors, the poor, the sick. Why? Because they get it. They get that they have nothing to offer God. And they see this great grace that is offered to them. And they're drawn, they're attracted to Jesus. And whenever he speaks, the Pharisees are like, I think this guy is a heretic. I'm just not sure what he's talking about. You know, he says something in like Nicodemus, unless a person is born of, uh, is born again. And what? You know, unless he's born of water and spirit. Who? You know, but like, then he says, look, you must worship the Father in spirit and truth. Go and sin no more. And then the woman at the well is like, all right, I got this. I don't have to go over there. You're right here, Jesus. They get it. And when he preaches and when he tells this truth, lost people are drawn to him. And the religious uh, the religious uh, hypocrites are angered. And, and they're kind of, they... They don't want to be around him. Look, this isn't the point of the sermon, but I, I can't not say this. It seems odd to me that, that in the South, um, that the opposite seems to be the truth. That in our church services, with our proclamations and our, uh, in our sermons and in our Bible studies, that the, the people who are drawn are the religious people. And the people who are pushed away, the people who don't feel welcome, the people who don't seem to get what we're talking about, are the ones who've run away from God. Maybe, just maybe, we don't look as much like Jesus as we thought. That's a heavy challenge, I know. It's not even the main challenge. We've still got something to go. But think about that. If we are preaching a gospel that Jesus preached, one that you can't earn, one that meets you where you are in the dirt and in the filth and embraces you, then the people who are in the dirt and in the filth and know it, will respond. And the ones who do all the right things will say, whoa, 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 whoa. What about me? What What are you talking about? That's what's happening here. And so let's go on. Let's go back to the younger brother. The younger brother has rejected God. And what essentially happens to him, um, what eventually happens to him, uh, he eventually finds himself in a dirty place, in a terrible pit, in a pig pit, hungry, broke, alone. This is meant to be painfully ironic because what the younger brother says in the beginning, give me what's mine, give me my share, and let me go. He thinks it's freedom. Freedom. And you hear this all the time. All these rules that God has. All these laws. All of these things that I'm supposed to abide by. Whether they're sexual laws. Whether they're laws about how we relate to one another. Whatever it is. They're closed minded. And they're, they're bigoted. And I will not be free or happy under these laws. So I will turn my back on God and on those things, and I will be free. And ultimately, that's what the younger son says. But then he finds himself enslaved. What he thought would bring him freedom actually brought him slavery. He was a slave to fine living and fine dining. He was a slave to prostitutes. He was a slave to pleasure. Only he couldn't realize it until the money ran out. The very thing he thought would bring him freedom brought him chains. Unfortunately, you don't realize you're in chains until you're face down in pig poop. Longing to eat pig food. Not pig. Not bacon. You know, he wants to eat bacon. We're all cool with that. He wants to eat the pods that the pigs eat. He's enslaved. So much so that he realizes, it says he came to himself, and he says, look, I'm going to die here in chains. I could at least die in Slavery to my father, I'll go back and do that. He recognizes that he's a slave. The older brother, however, he turns to what I'll just call the law. He turns to works, obedience of the law, morality, keeping every one of his father's commands. And where does he find himself? In the very same place. Slavery. Slavery. Because when the younger son comes back, what does he say to his father? I was like a slave for you. Look, these many years I have served you and never disobeyed your commands. He was a slave to good works. He was a slave to his own morality. He was a slave to pride. He was a slave. And so both sons, young and old, miss the point, and because of it, they are slaves. So that's the context for this story. Two sons, both lost in different contexts because of different approaches there are two ways apart from Jesus that we approach God the Father. The first is that we shake our fists at his rules and that we turn away in rebellion. And the second is that we shake our fists at his rule and we follow it in rebellion. Both are chains. But then the Father comes. If you notice, he runs out to meet the younger son, and when he gets to the son, the son says, "Look, I've, I've got it figured out. I messed up. Can I just be your slave?" His father looks at him and says, "No, you're my son. We're already having a pig, pick, a, a cow pick and a..." A calf picking, really. Um, it ain't pig, right? But um, there's a party. You were dead. and You're alive. You were lost. You're found. Come in. Uh, Dad, I smell like pig. I need to shower. This is not, uh, it's embarrassing. Come in. Eat. Drink. That's how he approaches the younger son. Don't be a slave. Be a son. And then later, the older brother, not in the party. God has to, just as the father, just as he came to the younger son, has to go out and meet the older son. So I need you to hear this. You who are from the south, as I am, and you who have grown up in church, as I have, and who have memorized Scripture, and who who have never broken any major rules. You 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 waited till you were married, and you never cursed, and you only watched PG and underrated movies unless they starred Jim Caviezel as Jesus. Right? You. The father has to come to you too. And he has something to say to you as well. He said, look, dad, I was basically your slave and you didn't notice me. And the father says, look, you were always my son. You just chose not to believe it. You didn't recognize it. Everything I had was always yours. And both sons didn't even realize that. He didn't have to die. He was ready to pour all of this stuff out on his sons anyway. They didn't get it. He loved them. He wanted to shower them with fatted calves. Well, cooked fatted calves. And he wanted to bless them. And he wanted there to be celebration and joy and happiness all the time. And they did not get it. So one turned away. One turned inward. Sorry. God says, no, you were, the Father says, you're, you're my sons. Come, let's, let's eat together. Let's be family. So in the end, it's the same thing. And so there are two approaches, two groups of people that this text is talking to, um, and there are three really places that you might be. And I want to talk to each of you specifically right now. Because here's the invitation. Don't be a slave. Be a son. Be a daughter. Some of you, you have heard this story, not just the prodigal son, but this story that is the Christian faith. And all you've heard Whether because that's all you've had ears to hear, or you've been at places and they exist where all they taught was that you need to do better. Shape up or ship out. That's all you've heard, and so you've said, Fine, I choose ship out. I promise you, I promise you that the freedom that you think you're experiencing. Their chains. I understand. I understand. It is too much to bear this weight of the law, but you're not supposed to. And wherever you are, whether you are happily meeting with The harlots, so to speak, whether you are living lavishly, as it were, enjoying being away from God. Or whether you are face down in the dirt, trying to eat food from pigs. God is calling you. You can cast your chains off. And if you are the younger son, and this is what's amazing to me, is that what was the younger son's initial response? I will go back and I will be the older brother. I'm going to change my approach. I'm going to change my approach from rebellion to moralism. I will be a slave. And so you're coming back and you're saying, I'm going to be here every Sunday. I'm going to give 25%. I'll be at every event I will atone for the things that I have done. Let me tell you, you are just forging tighter chains. You cannot do it. But God calls you in Christ. Come, be a son. Leave your chains at the door. And come, eat with me. And finally, what I I think is the majority of us, the older brother, who knows the songs, knows the key scriptures, the Romans road, the four spiritual laws, has been obedient and faithful, and you think that that's enough. Or you are trying your best because you think you need to do that to earn God's favor, and you are tired and you are bitter. Here's an easy way to know when someone is an older brother. How do they respond when a younger brother Enters the room? How do you respond when a homosexual enters the room? How do you respond when a group of people who aren't quite dressed? the way you think they ought to and maybe are of a different ethnicity and surely are part of some sort of violent group enter the room? How do you respond? If it's uneasiness, if it's anger, bitterness, hate, you're an older brother. And God is talking to you this morning too. And he's saying, cast off those chains, cast off... The weight of the gospel or of of the law and believe the gospel. Turn to Jesus. This is it. There are two options. You're either a son or you're a slave. Don't choose chains. This is the ultimate reality of Christianity, this is what differentiates it from every other religion do you see, both the sons had the same thought in their approach, and I'm going to end with this so hear me, that there is some sort of a mountain proverbial in this case and that at the top of this mountain is is the Father it's God this mountain is very high and so what religion, what morality tells us to do is to get to climbing. Because you're not going to make it to the top if you don't start climbing now. Every religion of the world preaches that. That God is at the top of the mountain and by good works and good deeds and living right, you Climb and you struggle and you scrape to get to the top of this mountain. The only problem is it's too steep and you are too weak. And though you're digging your nails in, you are falling. And the other approach is to say, He's all the way up there, forget it. It's easier to slide down that way. Plus, it looks like there's a better party down there. But what the gospel says, This is amazing. Both of those approaches are described, by the way, in scripture, in Psalm 24, when the psalmist says, who will ascend God's holy hill? Who will ascend God's mountain? That's what we're saying. There's a holy hill that we must ascend, and he says who? Him who has clean hands, and a pure heart. And so what do we as religious people do? We sing songs that say, give us clean hands and pure hearts. When the actual response is, wait, Jesus has clean hands and a pure heart. He descended that hill and he is here with us. This is the gospel. You don't have to go up that hill. Jesus came down and on the cross, Chuck Norris, roundhouse kick the, the hill away. There is no mountain, just Jesus. And you turn to Jesus and there is freedom. This is the gospel. And it is yours if you will believe it. And that is what we're talking about. There's no more circumcision in the way that we understood it before. There's, there's no more Slavery to the law. There's not a list of things that you have to do so that God will love you. He loves you, so He did it for you, and He came down. He lived the life you can't. He died the death you should have so that you could have all of the blessings that belong to a son. The one who became, or who knew no sin became sin itself so that you who were sin might become what? The righteousness of God, this is the gospel, this is the story. We are all lost sons who are slaves, but there is hope in Christ. And every week, every week, I know and I, I pray that we will be restating this within the context of Galatians. So you're going to hear this. And So there are two things you need to do. Respond. Believe the gospel. That's the first one. And the second one is this. Look, we're preaching the gospel. We're preaching it for the religious. We're preaching it for the sinners. Bring people. Look, we talked all all of the last series about how there is a relational aspect to evangelism that must not be denied. You must meet people where they are Evangelism is building a bridge from your heart to someone else's so that Jesus can walk across it. There must be relationship. But there is time for bringing them in and letting them hear the preached word of God, the gospel proclaimed, so that they might respond. So do that. Look, for some of you, this may be the first time that you're hearing these things. Or it may not be the first time you're hearing it, but it's the first time you're hearing it, and I do I do not want to neglect this chance to tell you. It's belief. There's not a magic prayer. There's not a magic formula. It's belief. And if you have not believed in Jesus, then please talk to me, talk to David, talk to Brad or or one of the elders. Talk to the person who you came with about what it means to be a Christ follower, about how you can trade in your chains for inheritance. All right, I'm going to pray, and then we'll take a benevolence offering.